Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, for your delectation and delight, I have Mikey Maynard, who fixes companies' revenue engines, and Mark Boundy, who fixes the company's biggest blind spots and makes sure that sellers sell what customers actually want to buy rather than what they think they sell, and then builds teams of trusted experts in order to facilitate that understanding. So welcome to you both. Marcus, it's really great. We've been talking about this forever, and I think we finally ran out of patience, and we're doing it. So I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. So, Mikey, would you mind giving 60 seconds on your history, please, and how you became a grumpy old curmudgeon like us? Yeah, definitely a grumpy curmudgeon. So my day-to-day work puts me with the world's companies on the revenue side of the equation, right? A dollar or a pound or a euro has to change hands for the company to be successful. And I'm beginning to see in a post-COVID world a definite worsening of how the revenue producers are led and managed, and specifically how a person advancing their career as a seller is coached. And I think, Marcus, coaching by the manager or supervisor to the rep is largely dead. I agree with you wholeheartedly. We'll come back to that in a moment. And Mark, if you could give your minute. Well, I um, have been in a variety of roles, product management, product marketing, sales, and then sales consulting. Uh, I used to work with the world's largest sales training company in the B2B space and have always noticed that sales process and methodology is a great thing, but most of them miss the most important part. And salespeople are worst at the most important part of selling. That's understanding your value. And so I've just really started to focus on that. And as part of that, all of that experience, I've found that coaching is kind of a dying art. I am so old that I remember CSO Insights doing research saying, you know, if sales managers will coach their salespeople once a week, sales performance in those organizations goes up by 34%. And I just saw this year, the statistic is, you know, if sales managers could just do so one hour a month of coaching, those sales go up 17%. So the bar has moved. Like it was so hopeless asking statistically, do you coach once a week? There were so few of those that they have to move the bar to once a month. And the fact that we had to change the question in order to get differentiation between companies do and companies don't coach speaks volumes. There was another really interesting uh, piece of research that uh, the SRC did a couple of years ago. And it said that something like 83% of managers uh, reported that they coached, but only 17% of the salespeople in those managers' teams reported being coached. <laughs> yep. So, um, I, I suspect there's an awful lot of self-delusion and reporting in order to try and tick a box rather than really trying to move the needle. So topics that I really want to um, co- concentrate on today are, you know, why is it that managers no longer coach as a part of their day-to-day activity? Are we fooling ourselves into thinking that because we've got visibility into the CRM reports, we actually have our finger on the pulse of what's really happening on the ground? Mikey uh, describes this as pipeline abuse. And I I think he's on the money here because um, far too often uh, we see sales teams being stuck in a room listening to uh, a dozen other people lie from this work of fiction. And then there's this bounce back, you know, back and forth so that the numbers are massaged so that they can look uh, presentable. So why is it that we're spending so much time worshipping the wrong metrics, like MRR, for example, which I know um, is a heresy, and Mikey and I are expecting torches and pitchforks uh, from that conversation. So let's start off with that. Why is coaching dead then, Mikey? Well, in the post-COVID world where we all live now, There's a vast amount of merger and acquisition activity taking place globally. And something's changed. But I've been around longer than Boundy has. And so I would notice this change. It used to be that investments 
venture capital, private equity, SPAC, private placements, were done based on the profitability of the acquisition. So we would look at the financials for a company and see how profitable they are and base our investment decisions on that. That's been swept off the table with the apocryphal story of when Instagram was acquired by Facebook a few years ago for 1.3 billion US dollars. How many employees did Instagram have at the moment they took that 1.3 billion dollars? Great uh, trivia. For some question. reason, 30 comes to mind. Yeah, 13. 13. That's a nice liquidity I, event. I, I misheard it. <laughs> yeah. So that story and its ilk have captivated the investment market. And there is a headlong race now to acquire companies based solely on the number of users, members, or conjoint with that, the monthly recurring revenue that as a service offerings draw in, irrespective of profitability. So companies that make those investments will dump millions and millions of dollars into a sales organization within one of their investment companies, for example, to hire more salespeople, hire more sales managers, hire more customer success reps, et cetera, et cetera. Even when the company that they're investing that money in produces zero profit dollars at all. So now what's happened? The senior leadership teams of those companies who are paid by those investors begin worshiping, adding members, adding recurring revenue, no respect to the profitability of a given deal or client acquisition. It's become a bizarre form of actual worship. And it has acolytes the world over preaching, we got to have more MRR. We got and take MRR times 12, that's ARR, annual recurring revenue. And so in a Mark Bounty world where you're supposed to be understanding the value of acquiring this client and delivering value to their balance sheet, we've forgotten to assess our prospects and see if we even want them as clients. We just want to sign them up and pray to God they'll renew next year. There was a, a piece of research that came out um, about eight to 10 months ago that said the top 100 SaaS companies on the planet have a median profit margin of 0%. And if you take mm -hmm. Salesforce out of it, it's in the negative. And so we, we've now got investors who are really speculators and gamblers in my book. And the moment you start doing that, that then shifts the culture because you might have had a good culture, but then the second these kind of speculators get involved, the focus moves away from creating buyer safety and delivering value to the customer so that they keep coming back. Um, and the emphasis is on new logos, new revenue, on what's in the pipeline, whether or not it's real or not. And I, I think, Mark, I'd like to uh, bring you in on this. How does the monthly forecast update cycle distract management from the real job of management? Well, you know, the monthly forecasting cycle goes like this. Week one, we just closed out last month. And so we're going to thrash you uh, over what you did or didn't do last month and begin getting you uh, the responsibility of updating what's going to close this month at the end of this month. Week two is getting all that updated and, and, and put into Salesforce and so forth. Week three, well, by now, week three, you're two weeks into the month, and a couple of the deals you forecasted last week and the week before have failed to close. You've gotten a no, and so we're going to ask you some of the deals to, to put in deals that you thought weren't forecastable 10 short days ago, but get them back into the forecast to replace them so the number looks as good as it ever did. And so there's this whole gyration of let's substitute crap deals for the last crap deals we had. And so you're out of this, you are no longer selling, you're manipulating the numbers. And then week four is, my God, we got to close some stuff. What can we discount? Who can we, who can we whore ourselves out to that will agree to close something right now? And then the cycle starts again. This is why people really do need to study history. Because if you look at the history of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, and the Soviet economic programs. They would unplant the um, entire fields of rice to replant the same plants 
into one paddy field. So it looked like a great, uh, there's a bumper harvest coming. And it, it would, be, you know, the, then the, you know, the, the Communist Party political uh, chief be able to report back that everything was fine and dandy. Uh, and then you end up starving millions. And the equivalent of that is the sales manager or sales director who is a, a, the equivalent of a payday loan offer. Because month one, you have to take $200 out, pay your bills, and pay $250 back. So what they do is they rip out pipeline, entire deals from future, from the next quarter or the next month, and try and bring them forward without any attention to the actual tariff of the workload that that creates. And it's like a traffic jam accelerating backwards at 12 miles an hour on average. You know... Marcus, I think it's it is all of these things, but there's something else happening as well. For the last 11 years, 11 years ago, there was a book published called Predictable Revenue and mm. how Salesforce turned <laughs> turned their company, their sales organization into a selling machine. And they did it by to looking at the sales process, subdividing it into its constituent parts, and then optimizing each step in the operation and hiring specialists along each portion of a conveyor, a sales conveyor belt who have very weak relationships to each other. And then if you manage the cold callers, if you manage the inbound uh, call qualifiers, if you manage the demo specialists, if you manage the closers, you manage to optimize at that component level. You're not optimizing at the system level. So As an engineer, I, you know, working with engineers as a young guy, I quickly learned the difference between optimizing the system or optimizing each component in the system and shoving them together. You always get worse results when you optimize at the component level and then shove them together without connecting them in a, in a consistent theme. And in so many companies, that doesn't work because the customer has never bought this before. They are unsure about what to buy. They're insecure and they would, they're looking for a trusted expert. And that could be from your sellers. But if your sellers, the first company or the first two people from your company that call that seller are a knuckleheaded cold caller, excuse me, um, a cold caller who is too busy and is not paid or incentived incentivized to understand your business or to provide insight because they got to make 90 dials and 50 emails a day. Mm-hmm. Those people aren't going to be that trusted expert. Your customer wants a trusted expert. It's just not going to be from you as evidence from the interaction they had with the first two or three people from your company that called them. So they're going to go elsewhere. So now we've trapped ourselves in this horrible cycle of customers self-informing without you. And so you have to have be super efficient at selling to customers who don't want your opinion, uh, which means we've got to just turn up the, the activity level to 12 because our customers no longer want us. They, and the only good thing about that is your competitors aren't doing it either. So your customers are going somewhere, just not one of your competitors. So imagine what could happen if you were the first one in your space to actually be a trusted advisor and to treat the sales process like it's the customer buying process and to have your metrics around the customer's buying process and what value we're delivering. And then we get into all the stuff we've been talking about. I think this really comes down to a clear definition of what selling is and what selling isn't. To my mind, selling is the facilitation of buying. And that's certainly the most elegant definition that I've ever come across. And now the problem is, if you turn up to sell, you create the conditions for an equal and opposite reaction, which is defensiveness. Um, and the everything about training, recruitment, onboarding, what passes for coaching, which is uh, typically going on a ride along and doing it for them. And essentially- (laughs) Doing it for them or thrashing them for not having closed a deal or, yeah. So you've got all of this and uh, it starts with, I I think the money behind the organization will uh, determine, uh, it'll permeate the culture of the organization. How leaders are compensated how managers are compensated and measured then drives the behavior that they reinforce or that they enforce uh, within the team. 
and they spend so much of their time in doing the work of the people that they have in their team that are paid to do the work, and they spend a whole load of time disempowering. And so my question is this, if we really want to fix sales, if we don't fix the management layer, is it ever going to be possible to turn sales into a profession, a real profession, as opposed to the, frankly, shit fest that it's turned into? Mikey. So your viewers can Google a Harvard Business Review article of a decade or so ago called The Monkey on Your Back. It's about management. And let me let me paraphrase it for your viewers. So the sales rep comes to their manager and says, I've got here a quote or a bid or the response to a request for proposals. And boss, I just need a second set of eyes. I want to make sure that I didn't make a math mistake or have a typographical error and so forth. The boss says, great, I'll definitely take a look at that. Another rep comes in and says that big deal that Mark Boundy talked about that's going off the rails. You know, I tried to call my lead contact sponsor at our customer company and she's gone on holiday and I don't seem to be able to reach her. The boss says, well, you know, that used to be my account. I still know some people there. I'll make a few calls. Mm -hmm. Well, what both reps have successfully done at that point (laughs) is they've taken the monkey and put it on the manager's back. And the manager is now a co-conspirator who has agreed to take on that selling activity. Uh, One client of mine, a global B2B SaaS company, calls that end-of-month manager dons the superhero cape and swoops in to save the deal. Well, that's now a manager not doing the work of a manager. That's the work of a rep to do those things. And so we've got this frantic activity syndrome of monkeys on managers' backs worldwide. I can detect it because I see emails from those sales managers going out at 3 a.m. on a holiday, you know, on a Sunday night, whatever. It means they've no longer got any work-life balance, and it means they're now performing the jobs of their reps So A, they don't have enough time to now coach those reps to know how to do those things themselves. B, they're disempowering, Marcus, your word, disempowering the reps who now don't know how to do that activity on the next three deals. And finally, it's pulling the manager away from a key job they have, which is recruiting talented future workers who could self-manage and do these things. And as you, you gave me kind of a leading question, We've contaminated the manager's day with monkeys on their back, whipped into a frenzy by MRR, client acquisition, those types of things. And the first thing to suffer is coaching. The second thing to suffer is the rep. They will eventually leave in frustration, creating undesirable turnover, and they'll be replaced by somebody else less engaged because now there are platforms that disgruntled employees can get on and say just how hideous a workplace my last job was. So the employer brand deteriorates. Somebody's got to break this vicious cycle, which is why I think we're doing this blog. Well, the the research on this is very clear. It was conducted by uh, Notion, uh, Notion Limited, and uh, in conjunction with the London School of Economics. On average, managers are spending 40 to 60% of their working life suffering from the upward delegation of taking the monkey on their back. When they stop and consider that in the 16 to 20 interventions per day on average that managers get from their team, where they're asking for help or direction or an answer, instead of giving the answer, they stop, they think, is this a coachable moment? and then offer an insightful question that helps the individual to move towards that, that releases at least two and a half months per year per manager. What it also does is in every single team, it creates 3,480 to 4,800 learnable moments and teachable moments in every single team. Now, imagine what if you could deliver that kind of capability at scale, hundreds or even thousands of managers in parallel. I mean, that's the, the, the math is stark. It's absolutely convincing. The challenge is most first-line sales managers say, sounds good, but I still have to chase all the reports every month. 
I'm not, I, and yes, they voluntarily turn themselves into the super seller, which doesn't scale, but they're, they're being pushed. Let's be honest. First line sales manager is probably the hardest job in business because you know how to sell, you know what the people below you have to do to be successful, but you don't know how to coach it. You don't know how to teach it. And there was no training in teaching you how to teach it. And you're, and now you're getting all of that ridiculous report-itis, that quarter-itis, quarterly-hour-itis multiplied by the MRR effect, the monthly recurring revenue effect. It's a really difficult job. And we aren't making it any better. It, it's going to take somebody to just say, look, stop the madness. Well, Mikey, let's bring you back in at this point, because it, it is madness. The insanity of how these companies are being valued. It feels to me like that's a bubble. And at some point when those valuations suddenly plummet and people wake up, you know, we've, we've had the South Sea bubble, we've had the Tulip bubble, and you know, uh, we, we had 2008 with uh, the subprime market. Now, wh wherever you look, you see greed driving the wrong behaviors. So my, my question is this, as leaders, we need to be ready to uh, be fired every day when we go to work for doing the right thing. And to my mind, there is a dearth of leadership. We see it in politics. We see it in business. How can we start creating a, a succession path for salespeople to move into management and managers to move into leadership so that we're creating a generation of real leaders as opposed to people who are bet little better than spreadsheet jockeys? Well, let's take Mark's prior example from just a moment ago of that difficult job of the frontline sales manager, director, supervisor. As I heard him talking about that, I heard, and guess what? That manager's upline leader is not coaching them. Absolutely. So how would I have any value I would place on coaching my downline if I don't receive coaching from my upline, right? So let's define what coaching is and, and to get to your answer, because I don't know I can fix global greed, but I can fix coaching, all right? The reason, Marcus, that you cited a statistic where 83% of managers swore that they were coaching their team on a regular basis, but only 17% of the coaches allegedly receiving that could identify it, here's why. We don't agree on what the definition of coaching is. Coaching is not training. It's not performance managing, and it's not mentoring. It is a unique function, and here's what it really is. Coaching is sitting with your direct report, helping them set goals for their own business and life, helping them figure out how they would be measured on the attainment of those goals, reminding them of training that they've received, keeping them on the cadence of using those skills and techniques, and offering helpful suggestions. So the reason 83% of leaders claim they coach is what they're really doing is basic training on product knowledge, or what they're really doing is performance managing, the punishment cycle that Mark Boundy identified earlier. That's not coaching. Berating me about my performance is not coaching. That's performance management. And it's not even mentoring, which is a helpful, supportive ride along to simply give encouragement to a star performer who's already got it dialed, right? So when the surveyors asked the manager, are you coaching? They threw in disciplinary action. They threw in training and said, yeah, I do that all the time. But the employee's saying, yeah, but you're not helping me. And what about my goals? And what about my life? So I described this earlier as a vicious circle. Somebody once told me the place to break a vicious circle is wherever you're at in it. And so the fix comes when a gifted leader at any level says, even though they starve me for coaching, I am setting a covenant every week with each of my people, and I will do the coaching as Mikey Maynard just described it. And I will allow them to hold me accountable and rate me on that. And I will plow that into my own self-rating at time of annual performance appraisal, right? If the rest of the company chooses not to do that, that's fine. But my crew are going to get protected. They're going to get grown and developed. And somebody says, wow, that crew over there their production's five times everybody else's at the end at the quarterly business review. 
Wonder what they've got going on over there. Oh, their leader coaches their people. Well, I can coach my people. It's got to be a grassroots fix. I can't fix greed, but you break a vicious cycle wherever you're at and you set a covenant with the people who expect you to protect them in work life. Very interesting. Okay, so in terms of what we should be looking at when we are hiring managers or promoting managers, what are the qualities that make for great management, in your opinions? Mark? You know, there is one skill of a great salesperson that translates well into being a great manager. And that is asking your customer questions so that they formulate the answer, I have to buy this. Great coaching is asking your people great questions so they formulate the answer, what I have to do to win this deal. Mm-hmm. And if you as a manager, you know, Mikey, I love your, your definition of the criteria. I, let me bottom line it for you. If during your meeting between a salesperson and a manager, it is the, the ratio of I'm uploading information to my manager so he understands what I'm doing to my manager help me figure out what I should do to win this deal. When I ask sellers, how many times during your one-on-ones do you actually come out of that with a better idea of how to even win one important deal in your funnel, in your pipeline? And the answer is almost always crickets. So stop feeling as a manager like it's your job to know what your people are doing. That's not it. It's your job to help them know what they're doing. And the great sellers of the world ask great questions. The great managers of the world ask great questions. They're just a different question. It's a meta question. It's about how to get them to ask their customers those great questions. And you don't tell them, you don't show them, you don't train them. You do all those things, but it's about now I've got to coach you. I've got to walk you through two kinds of training exist in the world. One is knowledge transfer, which is how do I fill out the bid? You know, where are the bathrooms? where the brochure is located. And the other one is behavior change, where the training event is introducing you to what I'm going to be working with you over the next three years of your life to get you to be do. So that training event is the beginning of a lifelong commitment with that subordinate, that trainee, that coachee. So that the, the training is the is the definition of terms. It's saying, remember when I said I was going to be coaching you on this? Here I am, and we're having that conversation right now. And done properly, it inoculates that manager from receiving more monkeys on her or his back. Because we teach the rep how to deal with the monkey, not to upload it to the manager. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mikey. The, you know, in marriage counseling, once upon a time, I got to a real clear understanding of whose problem is it. And when it's somebody (laughs) else's problem, you want to lovingly and supportingly say, looks like you have a problem. Is there something I can do to help you solve your problem that you have? And so you're being supportive, but you're not taking ownership of the problem for him. You're not taking the monkey on your back. You're helping them quickly get the monkey off of their back. And there's a world of difference in that, in between those. Marcus, there's a, there's a wonderful resource In the form of a book, it's on Amazon and other services. It emanates out of the fabulous country of England. And the book is called The Coaching Habit. And any salesperson should read it because it's the personification of what Mark Boundy just said is how you have a conversation with a customer by asking questions. The book was written for leaders to know how to do question-based coaching. And it has literally a cadence of seven questions. Again, the book is The Coaching Habit. It's a fabulous read. They've nailed it exactly. Is it by? I don't remember the authors. It's uh, published in Britain out of British research sources. And all you would have to do is go on Amazon or Google and type in the title, The Coaching Habit. It's fabulous. Excellent. So what what I would like to explore, um, Mikey, is your thoughts in terms of what a great manager needs to possess before you hire them. Well, the Gallup organization did extensive surveys a few years ago 
They wanted to know what makes for a really great manager, leader, and even individual contributor. And the authors of of the, the book, which is called The One Thing You Need to Know, were stunned because they thought the secret of being a great manager would be highly complex, a lot of variables, a lot of mathematics. That boils down to one thing. Great company leaders carry their people forward to an optimistic future. So the CEO, the chairman comes on board the call and says, just so you know, times are a little rough in this post-COVID era, but we're gonna pull through and we're doing the right stuff. Now below them are managers. The secret is different to be a great manager and it's not complex. Great managers treat each of their people differently according to each of his or hers strengths. Would mean you'd have to actually talk to them. It means you actually have to know them. It means you have to get your head out of Salesforce reports and go know the unique needs of each of your people and treat them accordingly. And then my favorite for salespeople, the secret for the world's greatest individual contributors, learn what you hate doing and stop doing it immediately. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. When I was a sales guy, um, I had the luxury of when my manager would come in and say, Mark, we, you know, we really want to close everything we can this month. I usually had the luxury of saying, look, I'm way over my number. And the only way that I could, you know, no, I am not going to discount our price to move it in by four days. It's just not going to happen because that wrecks the company's profit line and it, you know, it wrecked my commission. So I am not going to do it. Having the courage to go to my manager and say, that's not the right thing. Closing today is not the right thing for this deal. Here's a deal that we might be able, let's try this one. But for these two deals, no. And being able to have the courage of your conviction and know right and wrong and know what's best for the company. And then my manager invariably would say, you know what, Mark, you're right. Let's work on that one. And let's just put these other two on the table. If anybody asks me about those two, don't even worry about it. I've got it. You will not hear about it because I've got your back. That manager in let me know, do what's right. And then the manager, I had another boss. We actually gave them a piece of chain mail underwear for his, <laughs> for his butt because we knew he was getting his rear end chewed, but we never heard boo about it. A great manager knows what their team has to do, knows how to get it from their team and answers and runs interference for the, the knuckleheaded things your manager's doing. Managers in my book have five critical functions. Hire the best people. If you hire the best people, 95% of your management problems disappear. Get the best out of them. That means proper onboarding, pre-onboarding, onboarding, training, ongoing coaching, accountability. Then make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. Help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from your senior leadership. And then manage inclusively. Make sure that your salespeople are feeding back because you'll create a learning environment. You'll create a collaborative Mm -hmm. environment. And I think one of the big problems that I see is so much management is set up to try and get salespeople to compete with one another instead of collaborate. So my question is this, how do we get... Even a small number of uh, braver, more courageous leaders uh, to recognize the power of collaboration. Oh, one of my, when I first started, my first grown up job was uh, at this company. And the fellow who was the national sales leader at the time was a regional sales leader. His sales meetings were go, let's go around the table. Anybody have a deal you're struggling with? And that entire team would collaborate. Did you think about this? I think, you know, when I have sell in that similar situation, there's usually a program manager that you don't get to talk to. Talk talk to them about this because this is going to, you know, this feature is going to be really important to them. And they'll, as soon as they find out that we offer that, it'll move right. So all those little tricks and ideas of collaboration among the team. And now that company didn't have the, the compensation structure allowed that and reinforced that you were to do that. 
when he was promoted, he got the entire company to do that. And now he owns other companies and he gets his companies to do that. It's And so when I was kind of just at a, a low level uh, sales consultant, you get the sales manager who's got eight direct reports. Look, if you don't think you can do this, find one of your salespeople who seems to want to become a sales manager and make them the informal leader within the team. Have let's During a sales team, ask, ask them for their advice because they're the high performer. Everybody wants to know their secret. Enlist them, make them the hero within the team. Don't you be that hero. Give a chance for everybody on the team to be the hero to each other. This speaks to how we recruit in sales typically. Oh. Because uh, what passes for great in sales is money motivated, self-starter, competitive, will to win. When you're a buyer on the receiving end of a sales call with somebody who has a will to win and is money motivated, you need to wash your hands. You, you You just feel like you need to wash afterwards. So while they may get the transaction over the line, then this obsession with MRR as opposed to retention and lifetime value of a customer. And again, I think that seems to have gone out of the window to a large extent. We're seeing snippets of it coming back. But Mikey, again, I'm really curious. What, why is it that when uh, we teach people to prospect, we're teaching them to prospect for this quarter instead of for a customer for 10 years down the road? Uh, let me step back just from that question to a prior point you made, because I can debunk what you questioned Uh, empirically. And that was the theory that an aggressive, money-motivated, proactive, time-urgent person should be your ideal candidate for a sales role like account executive. So we undertook a study of approximately 100 salespeople in a B2B SaaS company that's a market dominator. The uh, solutions they sell run in the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're talking a lot of money at stake here. And we did a whiteboarding session to ask, you know, what do you think would be the secret sauce of your top performers? And it was things like fire in the belly, grit, money motivation. And that's not what bore out at all. We did a very extensive empirical study. And we learned that to a person with a 0.0 chance of error, The top predictors of success as an account executive for that global leader, number one, business acumen. Number two, they tended to be the farmer, not hunter profile. And definitely money motivation was negatively correlated with success in the job. Instead, the desire to affiliate with and help other people as a motivator was the top predictor. So we just now debunked what 200 years of, we thought, gritty, fire in the belly, proactive, money-motivated people will be our top performers. And instead, you need to pre-assess people you hire for their business acumen. And you need to measure their motivation. And there are instruments that do that. And your viewers can reach out and make contact. And I can provide sources of, of that type of stuff. But the point is, that's not what is being hired for in the interview room. Like, say, Mikey, I got a question about that, uh, that, that company that your top 100 performer, mm-hmm. you know, your top performer there. I've seen some research that says some customers, when what it is you're buying is new to me, new to my company, risky to me, risky to my company, or very technically complex, that I am willing to consult with a, a trusted expert. When I know all about it, when I buy it regularly, it's not risky, it's not consequential then I don't want any sales. I don't want that farmer mentality. So can you confirm or deny that this company that you you sell sells into an environment where it's new or risky to their customers? Yeah, it's enterprise uh, infrastructure as a service that runs the world's largest call centers. That's a complex, sticky, hard to figure out item. It's not something they're going to go on Amazon and look for five-star reviews and get their credit card out and buy. And so, Mikey, the reason I ask that is there's probably a bunch of people out there saying, well, I've got that system. I've got my cold callers, my warm, you know, my inbounds, and I got those things. And it's working. It's working better. And rather than just saying, 
yes, a crappy system works better than no system, it does work for some companies. And so I want to be able to say, look, if you have that kind of customer who buys it all the time, it's not consequential to their customer. They know exactly everything, all the criteria, the buying criteria. They, it's not risky or new to them or their company. Maybe you can be more mechanized. In five years, your, your salespeople are going to be replaced by bots. But for now, until those bots are quite good enough to sell what you, you know, to sell what you sell, maybe, maybe that's okay. I, am I, talk me off a ledge. Am I smoking something there? Well, all the studies in the last three years show your average typical economic buyer, an official within a large corporation that can move budget dollars to get whatever it is bought. They have purview. They have right of approval. They, they are chained to business outcomes. Even those people don't want to talk to a salespeople, a salesperson. They want to do some research or have their team do some research and narrow down. And then they want to see, is there a way that our company could try or use or partially install whatever this is, often called a proof of concept. And then maybe they're willing to talk to a trusted expert within the company because they've had so much bad experience with the mechanized sellers that they're very reticent to do that. Now, on this particular podcast, there are three people that are absolutely guilty of this. Marcus, Mark, and Mikey recently have reached out to Amazon or a similar e-tailer and bought something, perhaps very pricey, without ever speaking to a human being because I don't even want to talk to them. So this is endemic in our modern society to not want to speak to a person. And if it's going to be somebody, it needs to be somebody with business acumen who by farmer, I mean, wants to cultivate a long-term mutually beneficial relationship that doesn't see me, the buyer, as some kind of victim or somebody to be tricked or duped into buying something on accident. And I suspect that in those roles where we have SDRs making outbound calls and account executives taking inbound calls and qualifying appointments being set, I'd be willing to bet the benevolent farmer with good business acumen would even benefit that model. In my experience. Yeah, thanks for closing that loop because we started out with this, hey, where does coaching go? And we talked about what sell sales and and mm -hmm. what sales success looks like for those companies that sell the sophisticated solution. And now if it's somebody with business acumen who wants to create a mutually beneficial relationship, how do you coach that when you're being asked to be the numbers jockey, the spreadsheet jockey? What's the disconnect between getting your people to be that high-minded, mutual beneficial co-creator of solution when you're asking them, can you please find a deal to replace the one that won't close this month? Yeah, they buy Mark Boundy's book called Radical Value, which <laughs> rewires the seller's brain into understanding value at the customer end. And that can be part of any coaching or training or mentoring visit with your team regardless. If you speak a common language, which isn't your language, it's not your stupid product and your proof of concept demo. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's how does this change the customer's life? And that can be adopted in either of the two bifurcated models that you've identified are popular in sales today is just where's the customer's voice in all this and how do you see what their value would be? <laughs> well, ma managers and leaders are so often divorced from the customer precisely because they are tied up in all of this administrative reporting and all the other gubbins and they're tied up in meetings and you know marketing doesn't spend anywhere near enough time uh, if ever in front of the customer cs the, the customer success people are brought in late and someone lobs the uh, the problem over the wall to them and now they have to start all over again so they create needless friction because yeah. of a, a shoddy yeah. my customer success. Yeah, my customer and my job in customer success is disabusing the customer of the lies the salesperson told them and telling yeah. them what we can do instead. Yeah, <laughs> it's a nightmare, and I, I I see so much wrong with the the ineffectiveness because 
the trade-off that I've seen go, go on over the last 10 years in particular is the trade-off of effectiveness for efficiency. And this shiny uh, new object, uh, you know, technology spaghetti syndrome that uh, so many sales and revenue organizations have gone uh, down the road of. And they don't know how to use it or they use it and abuse it. And you've got people getting blacklisted because they're you know, spamming and you, you've got all this noise going on. And they're creating the conditions where essentially we've, we've forced buyers into becoming reclusives. Share you some, some data. From 2006 to 2021, uh, I got data for 2008. In 2008, there was 150 sales and marketing technology solutions available on the market. So in 2006, <laughs> call it around 100. In 2021, there was over 8,000. So from 100 to 8,000 in that 15-year span. Yeah. In that same 15-year span in 2006, no decision at the customer was the outcome of 18% of sales in B2B. Now that is, depending on whose research, it's 40 to 60%. So yeah. call it 50% or triple what it was 15 years ago. We've got 50 times as much automation and we're tripling the failure rate going to no decision. So I... It's a little hard to, you know, as a, as a scientist, it's hard for me to say that all that technology has caused that failure, but I can say pretty confidently that all that technology has not helped. And this is the big question. Why is it that there is not enough reflection within organizations where they're saying, well, why isn't this working? Because what, what, what I see happen is they throw point solutions at complex interdependent problems and nothing changes because they're not fixing the problem at its cause. And very few of them are looking upstream. They're trying to treat symptoms. So yeah. Mikey, let, um, let me bring you in on this. Again, why does that happen? What, why is it so few people in leadership are actually reflecting and asking, well, what if, and leaning into these problems rather than just throwing money at them? Yeah, the human brain reacts largely to reward and punishment. We're not very far out of the primordial cave, let me tell you. And so what I end up doing as that leader of a company is I seek whatever gets me rewarded and I avoid whatever gets me punished. The reward and punishment system is affected by this move to a profit, hollow MRR or client acquisition. You pay me to acquire clients, I'm going to acquire them. And most of them are terrible. Most of them don't renew. But by golly, I got paid for acquiring them, okay? <laughs> and I avoided punishment by putting a bunch of fake stuff in my pipeline reports so that I would look like the uh, Chinese rice paddy farmer with a bumper harvest. <laughs> it's reward and punishment. So I, I'm not blaming. I'm not like angry with company senior leaders like chief revenue officer, chief operating officer, CEO. They're doing what they're rewarded or punished about. And again, the way to break a vicious cycle is where you're at in it. So I have a suggestion for your viewers. Take 25% of your sales team, whatever that may look like and, and be in quantity, and bring in an outside coach with a weekly or bi-weekly, whatever the rep and, and sales manager want, one-on-one -on -one coaching from somebody wise who's outside the company and isn't rewarded or punished. And it will cure things like Mark Boundy's, why do we silo up and people don't share information? Or Marcus's, why don't people collaborate and get feedback from their sales reps? You know why? Because that skilled coach will be the nexus of that connection, but only do it for 25%. And then compare their numbers each quarter for the next two years against the 75% who we simply abandoned to whatever the status quo is. Because I'm running this experiment in client companies of mine around the world, and the difference in production is astounding. The difference in renewal, the pop term now is called negative churn, by the way. It means the customer success rep doesn't just get them renewed, but they sell them some more stuff as well. Yeah, Those numbers are a multiple of the 75% control group who receive no benevolent coaching. And it breaks the poison of reward and punishment because as a coach, I'm simply paid to coach and I do the right thing. There, there was a 
piece of research that came out of Gartner, I believe, that said that with only one hour per month of follow-on reinforcement coaching, companies get a 36x higher return on investment from training. And so let, let's uh, wrap up with um, a, a little diatribe about training because I'm deeply, deeply disturbed by the amount of money that is thrown by putting lipstick on a pig on either product training or technique training without ever training salespeople in understanding the mechanics of how a business works. The conversations that are going on at board level around the day-to-day -day operation, the consequences of being the purchaser and this either working or not, because the, the moment that someone buys, they've purchased 100% of the risk. All of this stuff is just not, not taught in any way, shape, or form in any training program I've come across. And you, know, you can teach technique to a chimp, but without the right intent and without the context to be able to use it uh, in the real world, it's largely wasted. So uh, again, what would you, if you were redesigning learning instead of training, how, where would you start, Mark? I actually work for this big training company and their flagship sales training company. They saw this on the wall and said, we need, we're going to keep on doing the training, but at this point in the training and in the sales, in this point in the sales, I want you to go to the customer and provide some insight. Use your business acumen, you know, that business acumen you have and provide some insight strategically at this point, this point, this point. Well, what's business acumen? Well, you know, your business acumen. Have some. And so, you know, I, 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 it was only two months later, I saw a speaker and one of the quotes on his slide was, you can't have insight on something. You can't have insight into something you don't understand. Yeah. So, and Mikey said it earlier, business acumen. I, I happen to have a business acumen course, which is between the MBA course, Microsoft actually gives its enterprise sales reps a year long business course that results in them <laughs> achieving an MBA. Wow. So some companies buy their their best salespeople an MBA because at Microsoft size sales, it's pennies on the dollar. Yeah. Other companies buy say by business acumen, and that's how to read a financial statement, which is almost useless. I am one of the top three, two, three percent in the world in, in my ability to read a company's financial statements. I was in banking for a company that forced you to really understand the business, the need behind under everything behind the financial statements. So I'm pretty good at reading them. And I can tell you that just reading financial statements doesn't get you business acumen. If you're looking for business acumen, that's not where you start. Get some pretty good business acumen and then financial statements will take you further, but they will not get you that first level. So I actually have in my book, uh, Radical Value, and I have a course that you can get just to say, here's 12 things you need to know about a customer so that you can start thinking like them, talking to them about the stuff they care about. And Mikey, what would you suggest if we were, rethi if we were rethinking learning with a blank sheet of paper? How would you start? Well, ditto on everything Mark Boundy just said. It's on point and, and is right. By the way, if you really want a piece of high irony, for that large B2B SaaS company where I discovered that business acumen was so important, I thought, okay, so how would you actually measure that? So I read every book I could find at the time, this is circa 2018, where the author of the book claimed that they had an assessment that would measure business acumen because they taught some of it in the book and then they're going to assess it, right? <laughs> To a person, each author, when you went to the appendix in their book and looked at their instrument, was a self-rating on a scale, a Likert scale of zero to five. How good do you think you are at reading financials? How good do you think you are at having a conversation with a company officer? And you just rate yourself. So salespeople are competitive. They, they give themselves fives. Well, great. They have business acumen. Now, what we need to do is stop hiring people because they sold for a similar company, a similar product in the past. Absolutely. And we need to hire people who can sell. And we need to measure, can they sell on a variety of planes? I'm fine with testing their technique. 
I'm fine with testing their business acumen. I'm fine with testing and knowing their personality. I'm fine with their motivation. The problem is sales organizations and their leadership and their partners over on the human resources personnel side don't do any of that testing and measuring. So what we do instead is we say, well, I knew this guy from the last company or, or she sold a thing a lot like we sell and she says she's a top performer and she's been doing it 15 years. Let's interview her and see if we think we like her and then we'll put her on board. And that typically has at least a 50% failure rate within the first year, meaning you're replacing that whole sales organization every two years. And turnover in sales organizations tends to be on a national basis in North America, about 40% annually. So the actual result of not hiring right seems to be bearing out for the last 30 years. So we need to hire better. And it's not about, did they do a similar job in another company? It's about, can they sell? If you look at the hidden cost of wrong hires, it really is eye-wateringly depressing. If you look at the, and the, wrong, uh, the cost of a wrong enterprise hire, can be anywhere between 35 and 125 times salary. You better be pretty bloody certain that you're hiring the right one. Yep. You're good. I mean, just in salary alone, you're going to be spending the price of a mortgage you know, in certain parts of the world. And by the time they're done and you find them out, that you know, they could have caused untold damage and cost. So just to wrap up then, because we, we've hit time, Tell me this, if you look back at your career, what was the best mistake you ever made as a manager? And what did you learn from it, Mikey? Sure. I learned this through one of those multi-rater surveys where I score myself on a variety of things. And then my leader scores me and then my troops score me, right? And I was very high performing sales division. So I expected pretty good reviews and typically got them. Oh my gosh, I got slaughtered by my people on keeping underperformers on the team too long and not paying attention to who to replace them with when I finally, at my snail's pace, did the bitter thing and terminated them. And I was shocked because I always thought I was good at hiring, right? I was stunned that a top performing division of a Fortune 1000 company with great net profitability their leader, me, was that incompetent at booting underperformers and getting good ones in. And it changed my life. I eventually became an, a world expert on how to select people ahead of time and know how they're going to perform, right? We don't hire them and go like this. I hope it works. <laughs> and it changed my life as a riveting condemnation of my lack of courage to dispense with underperformers. Fabulous lesson. And uh, that will be the subject of um, a future podcast, I suspect, because predictive hiring is such a critical skill that almost no managers possess. So, Mark, same question to you. Not concentrating on the weaknesses, but concentrating on people's strengths. Sometimes the leader has to know when to be led. So, uh, And my lesson was partly watch being managed by somebody who managed me by process of elimination. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. That was dumb. Uh, and having to ha make it by default, making me figure it out for myself or the manager that uh, was able to coach and mentor me and ask questions and help me figure it out. So I learned my best managership by being managed so that I can start practicing that myself. Uh, that kind of speaks to your upstream, downstream culture of management, doesn't it? It does. And I, I mean, to my mind, my, my thinking's been going down this road for a while, but I think we really need to start creating a proper apprenticeship for selling and for management because that, there really isn't one. You know, to, to qualify as a salesperson, you get the job, you get the card and you get a phone and off you go. And to be a manager, your boss has to be fired and you get tapped on the shoulder and told, Mikey, you're now the idiot boss. Congratulations. And that's your yep. runway. A whole area that, uh, again, we, we can't talk about it now, but I'd love to dig into the whole conversation around management enablement and um, the hiring process in particular, because uh, when you get that right, 
then the upstream impact, uh, sorry, the downstream impact with very little force at the upstream point is massive because you start creating this flywheel effect and the culture starts to change. So I'd love to have uh, have you both back to discuss that. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. You know, I'd almost changed my answer. One of the, the best lessons as a manager was to not, was to be the force multiplier and not the Superman. That is the hardest, oh. hardest part of the job. It's the one that makes the most difference. Fantastic. Well, uh, guys, thank you so much. Mikey, how can people get hold of you? Actually, that's very simple. Mikey, M-I-K-E-Y, at board, B-O-A-R-D, developer.com. Mikey at boarddeveloper.com. Reach me anywhere in this part of the universe. Excellent. And Mark? I'm at Mark with a K, M-A-R-K, at Boundy Consulting, B-O-U-N-D-Y, consulting.com. Excellent. Mark Boundy, Mikey Maynard, thank you. Marcus, Cheerio. thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again for the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please tag somebody who would benefit from it. And go back, listen again, take some notes to maybe implement some of the suggestions. Heaven forbid. And if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.